All right, so how many C.S. Lewis fans do we have here? All right, I want to share something with you, but what's interesting about this is what I'm going to share from you has been attributed to C.F. Lewis out of his book, The Screw Tape Letters, but what I came to find out is this is actually not a quote from C.S. Lewis. Someone took the words of uh, a section in his writing of screw tape letters and twisted it in to be apropos for what's going on in our world today. And I still think it's pretty significant and pretty apropos to share with you. So if listen to what, how he twisted the words on what C.S. Lewis wrote. And if you remember, screw tape was a demon. And he was leading and teaching his nephew Wormwood on how to be a demon to, to keep this, per, this guy, the patient, in, uh, away from Christianity and, and securing his eternal damnation. Listen to what he writes. My dear Wormwood, be sure that the patient remains completely fixated on politics, arguments, political gossip, and obsessing on the faults of people they have never met serves as an excellent distraction from advancing in personal virtue, character, and the things the patient can control. Make sure to keep the patient in a constant state of angst, frustration, and general disdain towards the rest of the human race in order to avoid any kind of charity or inner peace from further developing. Ensure the patient continues to believe that the problem is out there in the broken system rather than recognizing the problem is with himself. Even though that's made up off of what C.S. Lewis actually wrote in his book, there's certainly truth in that for us today, isn't there? Because Satan has used this election to distract us from the work that God has created us to do. These past four or five days have been marked by riots. They have been marked by hateful words, accusations, division. In this, in this, even on the gloating side, or this hate and this anger that's coming out of us, we self-justify it because the problem's out there. And for us, in today's context, the out there is who? It's the Russians. It's Democrats. It's the Republicans. It's WikiLeaks. It's the liberal media. It's the electoral college. You see, because the problem is out there. Things that are completely out of our control. In this past week, and even longer, I have seen fellow believers face-to-face, -face, and even on social media, bashing and belittling each other because of who they voted for and the reasons that they voted for this candidate. Both anger and gloating over the results of the election. You know what the real result is? Is that anger and that gloating is stopping us from being the people that God has created us to be. Loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled. 
people who should be focused on charity and inner peace. See, we as a body of believers have to come to the reality that Donald Trump is going to be the next president of the United States. That regardless of how you voted this past Tuesday, regardless of how you feel about the results, there's nothing that you can do about it. It's out of your control. God's will has been done, and now we are left to follow his lead. That is what God's word tells us. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Donald Trump has been chosen by the people of the United States of America to lead us. And you know what? We have to be okay with that. Because you know why? Because as we turn to God's word this morning to look for peace, to look for hope, to look for direction in our lives, it doesn't make two hills of beans who is president. Because Jesus still sits on the throne and is king. And the truth is that I would have said those exact same words if Hillary Clinton would have been elected and it would have been Donald Trump on the outside looking in. Because you see, our hope, our peace is a people. Our hope and peace is followers of Jesus Christ. Our hope and peace is a church does not ebb and flow with who was won in an election. Nor does, does our hope reside in a conservative Supreme Court and the promise that it may have of a repealed Roe versus Wade decision. Nor as if our security should lie in a, in a Republican-led Congress that promises a stronger military and tighter borders for us. Because a real hope Our real peace only comes in the form of the person of Jesus Christ. And you see, it's this hope and this peace that we have deep down inside of us. This is at this time in our country, this is what we need to be sharing with others, sharing the word of God, sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, spreading it like a salve on the wounds that are afflicting our country and its people. And I stand here, and I firmly believe that if we want to make America great again, or we really desire to be stronger together, that the only hope that we have to do that is through the local church. That's through you and me stepping up as leaders 
in our homes, in our communities, in our schools, in our workplaces, on the sports fields. Being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, focused on things that make an eternal difference. That's who we need to be. And in our passage today, we're going to see a very practical example of how to do this. It's a passage that that speaks to leadership and its importance in our lives to, to tackle and to accomplish things that stand in the way of what God created in advance for us to do. So I want to challenge you to do is to take out your Bibles and open up to the book of Exodus. We're going to be looking at chapter 18 today. And I'm happy to say this passage takes a little break from all the rumblings and grumblings of the Israelites as they're making their way out of Egypt. See, at this point in time, they've been out of Egypt for about two months. And it has been a really tough time for them and their leader Moses. Twice they, were, they didn't have water, they didn't have food, they were attacked when they were out there. Think about if a vote would have been going on there, <laughs> right? All the grumbling, they would have kicked Moses out of leadership at that point probably. <laughs> he went from hero to the, to the point of, of contention and the point of, of unsettledness in no time flat. And you remember what Moses said last week? Why? Who were we? We didn't cause this. We didn't do this. Moses didn't take that grumbling and that dissatisfaction and then, and then turn it to God. He took the shots, right? That's what leaders do. You're out in front. He was the one that God's chosen, so all the dissatisfaction went right to Moses. But Moses handled his leadership responsibility the right way. What did he do? He didn't in turn take that grumbling and face it towards God. No. Moses turned to God to provide what they needed. Turned to God to protect them while they were there. He did it right. And then twice God provided water. He provided manna and quail. God's the one that defeated the Amalekites. Over and over and over again, God protected them and God provided for them, despite all the grumbling and complaining that was going on. And also during this time, God provided wise counsel to Moses through his father-in-law, Jethro. You see, the good news of what God had just done in verses 17 and prior as they were going through all these struggles had gotten its way all the way back to Jethro, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, out in Midian. Now, we don't have time to cover this, but the first 12 verses in in Exodus, Exodus 18 talks about Jethro's journey from Midian with Moses' wife and two sons, comes all the way back, meets Moses um, in the desert. They have a, a great reunion, a sweet family reunion. Um, uh, uh, 
Moses recounts everything that God has done. Jethro is, is over the top, excited for them. They praise Yahweh, which is the, which is the personal name of, of God, that he's personally involved in their lives. They make a sacrifice to the Lord. They have a meal together. And there's just this genuine, sweet time that's taking place with this, with this family. And this is where we pick up the story starting in verse 13. Now, as we go through these next 14 verses, I'm going to identify six leadership principles that, that will really help us be the people that God needs us to be. You can follow along. They're in your sermon notes. You'll be able, to, be able to write those down. But I want to say one thing before we get started is a lot of times we'll say leadership and people will tune out, right? Because, well, I'm a student. I'm not the teacher. Or I'm, I'm an accountant. I'm not the CFO. Or I'm, 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 a, I'm just a, a member of the group. I'm not the leader of the group. I need you to erase that from your mind, right? Because these leadership principles apply to every one of our lives because we form and have different roles in all areas of our life. You could be a baseball coach. You could be a, a troop leader. You could be the leader of your home. You could be on your homeowners association. There's all kinds of different ways that we play leadership roles. You don't have to be a CEO or a senior pastor for this to apply to you. All right? So let's start by looking at verses 13 and 14 in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 18. The next day... Right? This is after they have fellowship in the meal and they praise God. The next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? That's just what we want as guys, huh? Our father-in-law coming in from out of town, button into our business. <laughs> but before we fall into that typical line of thinking, though, we're going to take a look at this sweet dialogue that goes on between Moses and Jethro. Jethro kind of serving as this, this sage, wise leader, offering this, this advice to a younger Moses as he takes on his role in leading these two million people to the promised land. And this point here is the very first leadership principle that we see is that every leader needs a godly person speaking into their lives. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I goof up and every time I make a bad decision, there's plenty of time, plenty of people standing around speaking into my life. Like color, like tunch, right? They're like color commentators on the radio. Well, look what Scott did there. That was a bad decision. Whoa, man, I saw that coming from a mile away. But that's not the kind of thing I'm talking about here. I'm talking about people having, having people in our lives that are invested in us. I'm talking about people in our lives that know us. I'm talking about people being willing to take the time and understand our circumstances, understand the situations that we're in. And to be able to, to, to invest, to be able to come alongside of, right? You think about how he did that. And when I love it, you look how Jethro, in this interaction, 
What were these questions, what were these based off of, right? When this interaction between Joseph and Methro, uh, Jethro, how did it start out? What did Jethro do? He asked questions. He didn't just say, hey, that's not right. You need to do this. You need to change this. No. Jethro asked questions. He was seeking to understand, not seeking to be understood. And he was asking these questions from what? A significant relational platform. Because these aren't two guys that just met in the desert. There's a lot of history here. Right? Jethro's his father-in-law. And how long did Moses know Jethro? How long was he in Midian? 40 years. So there's a long history between these two. They just, they just traveled from Midian. He invested to go from Midian all the, way to the, all the way to the desert. They sat. They celebrated. They had a meal together. Jethro cared. Jethro was involved. He understood the circumstances. He knew what was going on. So his questions that he asked isn't some drive-by commentary from somebody. See, Jethro was somebody that cares deeply about Moses, and Moses knows it. As such, Moses is willing to listen to what Jethro has to say instead of being defensive or dismissive to what Jethro's opinion was and input was. And look how Moses responds in 15 and 16, right? So Jethro asked these questions, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And Moses responds, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. Here we see the second leadership principle. We need to be honest about our circumstances. Right? Moses shot straight with Jethro. He had it all figured out. This is what I do. I come, they grumble, I deal with it. There's two million people. This is the way it's designed. God put me in charge. This is what I'm doing. It's my responsibility. He didn't make up any excuses. He didn't even say, I wished it was different and somebody would step up and help me. He just says, it is what it is. And guys, this is the point here. If, if we have a person willing to speak into our life and invest in us, when we're in dialogue with them, we need to be honest about what's going on. We can't tell them what they want to hear. We can't, we can't change the facts to make ourselves look better, look smarter, even more spiritual. We have to look to them and say, guys, this is what's going on. This is the reality of my situation. It's the only way that it is going to work. And when we're honest, we better be ready for the feedback. And look how Jethro responds in verses 17 through 19. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice. And may God be with you. 
you must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Okay, so this is the third leadership principle that we see here. That we need to demonstrate humility by allowing others to speak openly and honestly to us. Right? You see what's going on in this exchange? Jethro doesn't sugarcoat anything. He's saying what you're doing is not good. You're going to wear yourself out. You can't be everything to everybody. You've got two million people standing in line day and night waiting to interact on you. That's not good. Can you imagine that? Two million people in one line. Do you know what my biggest anxiety is? Going to Giant Eagle and getting in the wrong line. <laughs> it drives me crazy seeing people walk out the front door after they got there after I did standing in line. But two million people, one line, that is a complete disaster and Jethro sees it, knows it, and calls him out on it. I don't know about you, but the truth for me is hard to hear at times. So like Moses, we need to be in a good place to be able to receive the criticism or receive the input or the feedback. And that takes humility on our part. Do we have to push our pride aside and humble ourselves to receive the input that somebody's willing to invest in us? Because if we don't, our pride will kill that valuable feedback every single time. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before what? Destruction. A haughty spirit before the fall. So we need to allow these trusted advisors to, to shoot straight with us. And we've got to be in a good place and maintain a humble spirit to not only hear what they have to say, but to receive the input that they're giving us. And Moses, or Jethro continues to give some very critical advice. Look at verses 20 to 23. It's a fourth leadership principle. To be an effective leader, we have to rely on others. 20 to 23. Okay, Moses, here's your job, verse 20. You, right, teach them the decrees and laws and show them the way to live and the duties they are to perform. That's your job, Moses. Verse 21. But select capable men from all the people men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. You see what Jethro is saying here is God never designed us to work alone. Do you remember back in Genesis when God created man? Do you remember the reason he gave when he created Eve? Genesis 2.18 
the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. You see, this is an abiding principle in Scripture. Then when we work for God, we're not to work alone. That we need to work with others. That's part of the reason that Jesus did not do his ministry alone. He surrounded himself with 12 men to share in the work and to share inside the ministry. But then when it was time to send them on their own, do you remember how he did it? Mark chapter 6, verse 7. He called the 12 to him. And how did he send them out? Two by two. Why? Because trying to work for God all by yourself will wear you out. You see, there's strength in numbers. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 10. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls down and has no one to help him up. Two verses later, verse 12, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You see, we're not meant to do life alone. We need help. We can't be everything to everybody. And that's God's design for the church body. See, as a leader, we need to do the things that we are wired to do, that we're gifted to do. Those are the responsibilities that we have, and we need to let the other work up to the people that God gifted to do that work. We need to delegate the authority, delegate the responsibility. We need to find others with the gifting to do the things that are harder for us to do. I love how Paul really lays this out in in 1 Corinthians. uh, When you think about, he uses this analogy of our body, right? We have different parts of our body. And for the body to be the body, we have to, all the parts have to, all the parts have to function. And Paul uses this same analogy to describe the responsibility that we have as members of his church. 1 Corinthians 12 uh, verses uh, 14 through 20. Listen how Paul describes this. Now the body is not made up of one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not be for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not be for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the bo- in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. See, inside of the church, we all have our part to play if we're going to be a plan of God's redemption of his people. We can't be all things to all people. We have our part to play, and we have to rely on others to do their part. That is the way that God designed it. And in looking for people to surround ourselves with, he lays out some qualifications when looking for people to support us. Look at verse 21, right? Verse 20, he laid out Moses' responsibility, but then he says, verse 21, what? Select capable, capable men 
right? So when we choose people to surround ourselves, they got to be capable of doing the work. They have to have the right gifting. We just can't surround ourselves with people we like and friends and family going to feed us a line of nonsense on what we want to hear to make ourselves feel good about each other. We got to have capable men around us, gifted to do the work. Then he goes on to say that the second part, what? Men who fear God. We just talked about this a couple weeks ago. This isn't an unhealthy, trembling, knocking of my knees fear. This is a, a healthy reverence of God and who God is, his majesty and his power, that that, that 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 person would stand in awe of who God is, that God created him the way or her the way that they did and give him gifts to do this work that this person's gonna step up and do. And know that God is in control. They fear God, they're in awe and reverence of him as a take on this work. And then it says trustworthy men, right? We have to have people that are around us that are true, that are trustworthy, that we can count on, that they're going to do the things that they're asked to do and do it in a way that brings honor to God. And then lastly, it says those who what? Hate dishonest gain. Well, what's that saying, right? We want people around us that are in it for the kingdom reason. They're in it to support the cause with the kingdom focus. They're not getting involved because of some selfish gain or an advantage that will come to them personally. They got to be in it for the right reason. So capable, men who fear God, trustworthy, and, 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 and hate dishonest gain. That's who we need to surround ourselves with as we go off to do this work. We see the fifth principle in verse 24, right? We must be willing to implement the ideas of others. So Jethro and Moses have, have this thing. It gets to a point through here. It says, Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel, made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people and at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. You see what it says right here? It said Moses listened. (laughs) He didn't get defensive. He didn't give Jethro a hundred reasons on why his way was the right way to do things. He didn't believe, come on, Moses, give me some credit on what I was doing was right. It didn't. It simply says, Moses listened. I know this may come as a shock to some of you, but you don't always have the right answers. And God puts people in our lives to tell us so. There's so many times in our lives that we get so close to the situation that we, 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 can't even, we can't even imagine how to deal with or attempt to cope with what we're facing and how to tackle this problem. And what happens? God ushers somebody into our lives and speaks these words. We're like, oh, duh. And it's because it's so clear to us. See, I think the closer that we get to what's going on in our life, I think our ability to diminishes <laughs> To be able to discern properly the closer and closer that we get and we live in that. 
I want to make two other quick points right here. Notice how it says in this verse that the qualifications are the same. Those four qualifications, right? Capable, men who fear God, trustworthy, hate dishonest gain. That's the same qualifications. Whether you lead a thousand, whether you lead a hundred, or whether you lead ten. It's the same qualifications. Just because you're CEO doesn't mean that you got an easier route to choose people that aren't necess- that follow these qualifications. Same thing goes, is true for a group leader. And notice how he goes from thousands to hundreds to tens. That means 10%. One in 10 of you should be serving in a significant leadership capacity. And if you're not ready to take that step, well, guess what? Someone is, and somebody leads when they take up, step up to take on additional responsibility, your role to come in behind them and fill the gap as they step up. And we see the sixth leadership principle in verse 27, that regardless of where the idea comes from, we, the leader, have to maintain responsibility for the execution of the plan. Look at verse 27. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. I love this verse. There's so much importance when it comes to leadership right here. First, it says Moses sent his father-in-law home. You know what he's saying? I got it. Thank you for your input. Thank you for coming all the way down here from Midian. Thank you for sharing a meal and celebrating Yahweh, what Yahweh did on our behalf. But you know what? It's time for you to go. I'm the leader. I've got to carry this out, and I've got to be responsible. And how does Jethro respond? He goes home. He doesn't stand around lording over Moses, making sure that he implemented the plan the way he told him to do it. He gave the advice, and he walked away. And he left the work up to Moses because he knew that Moses would rely on God. See, as leaders, we are the ones responsible for carrying out and being accountable to what God has placed in front of us to do. The buck stops with each one of us. Whether it's in our homes, our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces, and here in this church. For us to serve well in each of these capacities, we've got to demonstrate these six leadership principles. They're key for us to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in a divided, hurting world. So probably most, like most of you, on Tuesday evening, I sat and watched the elections unfold on TV. And I'm not much of a TV person. I watch sports. And I sat with my 11-year-old son and my 13-year-old daughter and explain to them what was going on. Well, my 11-year-old son made it till about 10.30, where he petered out. As you guys know, that was before the election results came in. I made it till probably 2.15. 
I called it a night, went to bed, and guess what? Alarm clock got, went off, and I got up. Like I do most mornings, I went for a run. Came home, I got a shower. But I came down my steps, there was a light on, which was unusual, and as I rounded the bend, that I noticed the TV was on, and my 11-year-old son was sitting in the living room. I said, bud, what are you doing? And he's got Fox News on. <laughs> You got to realize this is a boy that gets his bus at 8.20 and he gets out of bed at 8. I said, bud, what are you doing? He just looked at me and said, dad, Trump won. Now what? And you know what? That is the exact same question that every single American has today. Now what? And see, it's those two words formed in that question that's at the heart of what's dividing our country. 120 million votes cast, about 600,000 separated. That's less than point, it's less than a percent. Our country's divided. And the division is because of those two words. Now what? And the uncertainty that follows. Now what is going to happen to my health care? Now what is going to happen to my family? Are they going to be deported? Now what is going to happen to my job, the stock market? Now what? Am I going to be persecuted for my religious beliefs? Am I going to lose the right to further my education? Am I going to lose the right to health care? Now what? And see, the deal is the questions are causing so much fear and uncertainty because those people's hope are planted in the answers to those questions. Their security lies in health care and their job in the stock market. But see, we know different because of God's word. We know that hope doesn't come from a presidential candidate. We know hope doesn't come from health care. We know that hope doesn't come from our paycheck. Hope comes from the beauty found in his word that eternal life is offered through Jesus Christ. This is where hope is found. So as fear and anger take hold in our country, I am convinced that never in my lifetime 
there's ever been a better platform for the church to be the church. For us to step up as leaders in school, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in this church. to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ like a salve that can heal wounds, the deepest of wounds, and that can provide hope like nothing ever will, hope that never perishes, never fades. So I'll ask you, the same question my son asked me. Now what? Now what are you going to do about the opportunity that has been in play, put in place before every single one of us to speak truth, kindness, love, understanding into those lives that God's placed around us. Now what? What is it for you? How are you going to activate your faith and make an eternal difference in somebody's life. By sharing the peace that surpasses all understanding and pointing them to the only true hope that exists. Now what? But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds 
and glorify God on the day he visits. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for a hope that can't be dashed by an election. It can't be dashed by anything. A hope that comes through a saving knowledge and a saving faith in your son, Jesus Christ, to restore our relationship with you. God, our heart is to be a people that not just know that, but lives it. Father, spreading this good news like a salve over this hurting nation. Father, because we know it is only going to come through this body that an eternal difference is going to be made. Father, help encourage us and push us in the right direction to make a difference, to use this platform in which you've given us in a powerful way to unite our country, to draw us together as a people with our eyes focused on you, that can change this world. We believe that. God, we beg you to use us in that capacity. And our promise is that we will follow the leader that you've put in place. But Father, we pray for him. We pray that James Dodson's words are true. That he, Donald Trump, has accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. God, we pray that's true. And we pray that you grow his faith, that you draw him closer to you. And that you continue to surround him with people like Mike Huckabee and Mike Pence and Ben Carson. That we can see him go from Saul to Paul. I ask you to be with him and to lead his steps. Father, we lift our country up to you. And Father, we also pray for Hillary Clinton. And Father, in, 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 in this time of this painful, stinging defeat, they would use it to get her attention and draw her to you. Father, we pray for her soul. We just ask you to call her out of darkness into the light, show mercy on her soul, Father, that she can be an instrument of yours in this world. Father, we thank you for placing us in an amazing country. We can accomplish great things, but only through you. Help us drive home that truth today. And that we know that we can accomplish all of these things through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray together. Amen.